Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. With me today are Adam Butler and Rodrigo Cordillo from Resolve Asset Management Global. If you've been watching Raise Your Average, by now you know that Mike, Adam, and Rodrigo are founding partners and officers at Resolve Asset Management. But what you may not know is what Resolve Asset Management does. They are a group of passionate investment professionals dedicated to providing investors with global investment methodologies, ranging from truly passive to cutting edge tactical. They are a quantitative investment firm that uses academically backed and empirically proven practices for portfolio construction. Their solutions are based on evidence, not theory. Resolve is an independent investment management firm established in 2015 with a Canadian head office in Toronto and its global head office now resident in the Cayman Islands. Resolve manages money for institutional and individual investors across Canada and the U.S., using primarily its proprietary adaptive asset allocation, tactical equity, and risk parity investment methodologies. Mike, Rodrigo, and Adam have established themselves and their firm as go-to authorities in the quant investing world. They're also the co-authors of one of the best books on the subject, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad. Usually, they're my co-hosts on this show, but today for the first time, and I'm very happy to say it, they are my guests. Today, we're going to peel back the layers on the onion of their most recent research paper, which they co-wrote with Corey Hofstein from Newfound Research and dropped last week, titled Return Stacking Strategies for Overcoming a Low Return Environment. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. It was high time we did this, right? I love the title, Return Stacking, and especially love the subtopic, Strategies for Overcoming a Low Return Environment that addresses a real pain point for the times we're in. To kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about the arcs of your careers, how Resolve Asset Management Global came to be, what you do there. Go ahead, Rod. Well, I don't mind you hit it off and then I'll talk about my trajectory. Okay, sure. So Mike and I, they're member of Resolve. <laughs> well, the, the elder member on this program, yes. Um, <laughs> on this program, that's right. Mike, Mike Philbrick and I uh, came together as advisors in the mid-1990s and um, founded a practice based on uh, systematic thinking, systematic decision-making, out of recognition from the decision-making literature that discretionary or narrative-based uh, decision-making was ineffective in complex fields. And so we began the journey of building systematic investment strategies based on quantitative and empirical best practices. So letting the evidence of history kind of do the talking and inform the decisions that we make on an ongoing basis, and then um, doing our best to stick to the, the decisions that come out of or emerge from our investment programs, rather than trying to override them based on our emotions, how we're feeling on that day, or some sort of misguided perception of um, the complexity of all of the different things that are interfacing with markets on any given day. Um, and we, we launched Resolve Asset Management, or we, we actually came together with Rodrigo 
um, on a on a firm transition in 2011 and in 2015, after we had deployed strategies and been running um, mandates based on these concepts for a few years, we launched Resolve Asset Management and we began with mandates uh, based on underlying exchange traded funds. And over right. time, we have added new products where we're, the underlying is global futures markets. So currently, um, we've got a variety of mandates uh, regulated by the um, Canadian regulators, some also in the U.S. and offshore that uh, run strategies with, you know, 70 or 80 different global markets with the idea of applying best practices across the factor literature, the machine learning and data science literature, um, and bringing our experience in markets to bear to deliver the, the smoothest risk-adjusted performance for investors, regardless of market environment. Rodrigo, I don't know if you want to add to that. Well, no, I just, uh, some of uh, my background maybe will inform why we invest the way that we do. So, um, you know, I was, I'm a Peruvian born and raised and, and one of the key uh, learnings that I had in my upbringing was seeing how the global macro space can affect your family's wealth. And so we emigrated in 1989 from Lima to Toronto because inflation in Peru went from 7%, from 20% to 7,000% in six months. And you can imagine that there's a bunch of dislocations there, including your own family's wealth, if you have it in cash, which my family did, or if you were a debtor uh, and owned a big mortgage, at which point after the six-month period, you were able to pay it off with whatever U.S. dollars you had under your mattress. It was very informative there. It was a lot of conversation about how, you know, what diversification is, uh, how we could have protected the family from that over the years. And when I got into the business after graduating from commerce and finance and statistics, you know, my dad was a mathematician, but was never able to use his, his uh, uh, numerate literacy in order to benefit his portfolio. I certainly took it back all the way to the 1900s when I was looking at global asset allocation as a way to survive long-term for my, my family, myself, and then eventually my clients. Because when I started uh, after university with uh, John Hancock on the institutional side and looked at a lot of retirement portfolios, transitioned to a boutique um, wealth management firm that managed um, the wealthiest families in Canada. So billions of dollars, minimum account size, 25 million. Got some experience there. And it was clear to me that the way to win at this game was to not focus on trying to pick Microsoft versus Apple, but rather to focus on picking gold versus German bonds or U.S. equities. The big muscle movements, it was the most important factor here. So when I began my career as an advisor in Canada, I focused exclusively on identifying truly non-correlated asset classes to put together and truly non-correlated alternative investment strategies, which my timing was kind of perfect because it was right before the OA crisis when I went off on my own and apply these strategies that could benefit from market dislocations. And they certainly did. Um, clients, you know, were, were in good shape through 08. Um, and, and then what I suffered through, through 09 until I joined Mike and Adam on the asset management side was a lot of tracking error, which is what we're going to talk about today based right. on the piece. And had the current public funds um, that are available today existed back then, it would have made my life a lot easier. As uh, even though, you know, you protect your client's money and pro partly profit and await by being different, 
it also means that you're underperforming your benchmark portfolio, which is a, very painful for most people. But yes, I did join Mike and Adam on the, and putting together quantitative asset allocation strategies and, uh, and with, within the, the understanding of proper portfolio theory that a lot of people and advisors, you know, erroneously think is a bad idea. Modern portfolio theory is oftentimes cited as a, as a, as a negative thing. Um, I think when you do it correctly and you think about proper portfolio construction and being able to scale your exposure to those asset classes so that you can get a proper investment result, a return uh, result, you can, you can find really solid scenarios, especially in a low return environment uh, th that we expect in the next 10 to 15 years. So that's, the, you know, that's a key difference here in Resolve is that we're not trying to pick stocks, we're trying to pick asset classes, we're trying to do it systematically. And we're trying to apply uh, modern portfolio theory in the way that it should be. And we've written a ton on that as well. Yeah, modern portfolio theory is one of those ideas that has, has had its detractors. And, uh, but that's probably due to, uh, you know, being misunderstood or misconstrued. Uh, it's got so many moving parts. And, and so you can see, it's, it's easy to see when you actually take it apart that there's a lot of room for misinterpretation. Exactly right. And Adam's um, seminal paper that he wrote back in 2012, Adaptive Asset Allocation Primer, starts with Geigo, the, the Geigo uh, analogy, right? Garbage in, garbage right. out. So you, you really have to know what you're putting into the machine if you want to get something that's useful on the way out. So that's an important, it's not for today, but it is an important topic yeah. that we've covered. And just to you know, set the uh, table that it is useful. You shouldn't just turn off your channel right now. And uh, at another time we may address it, but uh, you can certainly read our literature and we can, we can provide some, uh, some information on that for sure. Okay. Awesome. Um, so let's jump in to your latest research, uh, return stacking, um, set the stage. Let's talk about, let's talk about the, um, the pretext for your latest paper return mm -hmm. stacking. Well, Adam, you, you did a lot of work on market expectations uh, over the years. Why don't we start with what we see as the future expectations and why it's important to do something different? Yeah, I mean, in a, if you sort of just randomly sample at any given time historically, um, you'll find that the average return on global stocks is about 4% above the T-bill yield on average. Um, and about 2.8% uh, above the 10-year treasury yield over the very long term, right? So unconditionally, if you just sort of randomly sample throughout history, you're not looking at current valuations or current bond yields. You, you would just sort of say, well, our expectation is for stocks to yield or to deliver returns, call it 3% above the 10-year treasury yield, right? So, but the long-term average 10-year treasury yield is somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 or 6%, right? In which case, the long-term average equity return is on the order of nine or 10% average. And um, the challenge is that if you look at the current environment, the 10-year treasury yield is about one and a half percent. Let's say if you add 3% onto a one and a half percent treasury yield base, now you're in a sort of four and a half percent nominal return expectation for U.S. stocks. But that's not even accounting for the fact that U.S. equities um, are also very expensive relative to their historical average when you look at such things as um, 
the long-term cyclically adjusted PE ratio or the market cap GDP ratio, which is Warren Buffett's favorite indicator of market valuation. Um, so you probably don't want to use the long-term average risk premium above treasuries. You probably want to um, discount some off of that long-term sort of 3% premium, maybe bring it down to 2% or maybe even 1.5%. So now, instead of an expectation of 4.5% to 5% nominal over the next 10 or 20 years for equities, you're down into the 3 to 4% nominal for U.S. equities. And that's not even accounting for the fact that if you carve out 40% of that equity allocation to allocate to high-grade bonds, well, high-grade bonds currently have a, um, a yield of around 2.5%, right? So you've got sort of 3%, 2, 2.5% for, for 60% of the portfolio, 2, 2.5% for 40% of the portfolio. So now your expectation for um, a typical kind of 60-40 portfolio is down in the range of 2 to 3% nominal. And sadly, most institutions that um, need returns in order to meet their long-term obligations and individuals who are looking forward into retirement and need a certain return in order to meet their retirement distributions can't meet them with those expected nominal returns. So especially once you factor in um, inflation and the potential inflation outlook from here, given the extraordinary monetary and fiscal policies that have been put in place over the last few years in most Western jurisdictions. So we came at the problem from the perspective of institutions and investors who require a certain level of returns are probably not going to get those returns from their traditional core portfolios. How can we make best use of the um, all of the the, do, the newer products that have become available over the last two or three years via the introduction of new regulations in both the U.S. and Canada that allow for for novel types of products to be introduced in order to um, increase expected returns while also al allowing investors to to capture the returns from the normal core portfolios. So that you you have you're minimizing the likelihood that you're going to suffer from this tracking error risk that Rodrigo alluded to, and maybe Rodrigo, why don't you sort of yeah. um, expand yeah. on this idea of tracking error risk? Yeah. So over the last two to three years, I've been chatting with advisors all over the world, everywhere, and in, in Europe, and U.S. and Canada, and the those that reach us and want to have a conversation have come to terms with the fact that the likelihood of their success for clients in terms of providing a sufficient enough return stream is very low over the next 10 to 15 years. They've also are coming to terms with the fact that if they make a massive change outside of their home country bias portfolio, that they're going to get fired. And in, in their defense, their job is not to do what's absolutely optimal, but their job is to do what's best understanding a client's utility function. Understanding that the client is likely to quit before they see the results of an unorthodox portfolio construction. And so they're aware that they need to provide that, that return stream for their underlying market. Because as you know, the most overused uh, saying is that the markets can remain irrational longer you can remain solvent. So Adam just went and provided a, a ton of good evidence as to why it is unlikely to see, we're unlikely to see good uh, returns over the next 10 to 15 years. But there's also a high likelihood 
that over the next three years, you might see double digit returns from that traditional portfolio, mm-hmm. right? So it, the way I handled that when I was an advisor was I took the hard road. I said to everybody, do not expect market returns. We're only aiming for high single digit returns over time and I'm not going to lose your money in 08. So, you know, that was a very unique and very small client base. The vast majority of successful advisors out there have built their business on their home countries. And to do a wholesale change and say, listen, we're going to go to a hundred year portfolio or an all weather portfolio or a dragon portfolio, whatever's popular nowadays that provides massive, uh, diversification in low correlation and traditional markets tend to be the first things that advisors and their clients quit on, right? And so in understanding that, that situation, what's happened over the last couple of years is that there's been a lot of uh, funds out there that have, that have recognized that and are providing a hybrid exposure between beta and alpha in a levered basis, right? So there are, you know, we know, uh, and a lot of people have are fully aware that managed futures, for example, trend followers are a really good diversifier for equity markets. But they've had a poor run over the last 10 years compared to the, the traditional markets. Regardless, if you put those together and you lever them up to a certain level, they actually provide a better outcome for, the, for investors. And so you're seeing funds in the United States, for example, that have a 50% exposure to equities and 100% exposure to CTA. And that hybrid position is a single line item that clients feel better about because the combination seems to be pretty robust. There has been a wisdom tree uh, came out with a fund that allows advisors to play around with that concept where, you, where they're, instead of providing a 60-40 ETF, they're providing a 60-40 ETF that is actually 90-60. Okay. So what does that allow investors to do? Well. You're not, you can, you can choose to just get a levered exposure to 60, 40, you know, that'll increase your returns, but also increases your drawdown. Really, it's a tool that you can use in order to, uh, allocate less to that. Let's say you allocate 67 cents on the dollar to that and leave 33% in cash. Well, it turns out, and this is what we outlined in the paper that, uh, that provides the exact same return as a, as a Vanguard's balance portfolio, right? right? So what do you have? You can buy the Vanguard balance portfolio for a hundred cents on the dollar, or you can buy 67 cents on the dollar on wisdom trees fund and have $33 left in cash. Okay. Now I'll tell you why that's so important because alternative strategies are often limited, especially retail available alternative strategies. When you go in long and short and you're doing a bunch of unique stuff, you, you're trying to cram in a lot of non-correlated strategies that end up leading, uh, with a pretty robust portfolio that has high returns for the risk they're taking, right? So the sharp ratio is higher. But if you look around, most alternative managers that, that actually try to exclude beta exposure or market exposure have a return expectation of 4 to 5% with a volatility of 4 to 5 right? Some of the most famous market neutral funds here in Canada are, are around that realm. And a lot of people say, okay, well, I'm going to reduce my client's home country market to give this slice of allocation. But what you're actually doing in a time where we're going to need more returns is reducing the returns, right? That, that combination just actually hurts your ability to get absolute returns. So it's not fun to allocate to alternative managers that are offering single digit returns. It's not attractive. But all of a sudden <laughs> with this 67 cents on the dollar, if you grab that 33 cents and add it to a single, like something that's going to provide 5%, then you, ha- you will get your 
exposure to 6040. So 100% exposure to 6040 through that 70% allocation to the wisdom tree. And what you're going to get what you're going to get. And if that alternative portion provides you with a 6% return next year, one third of that is 2%. You're literally stacking that return on top of your 64. Right. what we're calling stacking returns, right? It is a way to add a, an increase, the likelihood of better returns for clients where it's those excess returns are not dependent on your home country bias and home country markets to do well. Does that make sense, Pierre? Because I know you're yes, like, I, I, I've got to get some feedback here. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you. You're yeah. doing, you're, you're, you know, it was quite eloquent the way you explained it. But. It's critical to reinforce this idea of what's, what's going under the, under the hood of this wisdom tree product, right? Like, this wisdom tree product, there are other products that are available or that will be available over the next little while that'll kind of do the same thing. But the idea is you're getting one, a dollar 50 of exposure to a 60, 40 portfolio um, in, you know, for every dollar that you allocate to this product, right? So you're getting 150% exposure to 60, 40. So 1.5 times 60 is 90. 1.5 times 40 is 60, right? So 90, yeah. 60, um, which is great because just to reinforce, if you take a two thirds of your capital and you allocate it to this levered 60, 40 portfolio, you get the same return as you get by allocating 100% of your portfolio to a Vanguard 60-40 balance fund, right? But you free up right. this 33% of cash to allocate to something new. And if you can find something that you expect to deliver a return higher than that cash, like Rodrigo says, you are now stacking the returns of, of these other yeah. things that you're investing in on top of the returns that you're getting from essentially a full allocation to 60-40. So you get the full, you're harnessing the full benefit of an allocation to 60-40. So you're not sacrificing that at all. And you're stacking something with a, with a return premium on top. And I think Rodrigo is going to show you uh, a visual of what that might mean. Right. Adam, thanks for explaining that. We're clarifying that. Takes, so thanks for... It needs to be repeated a few times because it, it is counterintuitive unless you've been involved in this yeah. type of thinking. Mm -hmm. It is kind of counterintuitive, so it's good to kind of come at it from a few different angles and reinforce it. But this is a really good diagram to illustrate what's going on. My, my thought was that it's pretty nifty. What we're looking at is a live, this is the live performance of two funds. Number one in dark blue is the Vanguard uh, 6040 portfolio, the balanced portfolio, right? This is from mid-2018 to today. And so that's if you invested 100% of your money in uh, VBINX, V-B-I-N-X. Why did you use these dates? The other option would have been to, to because that's when NTSX went live. Exactly. Yep. All right. So uh, NTSX went live mid-2018. And so I wanted to show not a back test, not theoretically. This is what actually happened to investors that chose to invest instead of 100 cents on the dollar to NTSX, 67 cents on the dollar which would leave, so this port, this light blue line is $33 in zero yielding cash, by the way, okay? This is not that the cash yeah. didn't yield anything in my, it is 67 cents on the dollar for MTSX. You can see that they're identical for all intents and purposes, okay? So the, the natural, like all you need, like what Adam said is that if you add that, grab those 33 cents and invest them into anything that you, you can start with simple things like a corporate, a short-term corporate bond, um, portfolio. Sure. Then all of a sudden that's an extra 1% return that you can 
eek out during that same period. So this just shows what would happen if you added 33 cents on the dollar to a, a, a short, uh, ladder corporate bond portfolio. Right. Right. So that's kind of the basics here. That's, that's, that's a starting point for this concept of stacking returns. And I, I think I want to emphasize how, uh, why this is so important and this conversation needs to be had today. Yeah. So that I just, I want think it needs to be had today. I just wanted to say, sorry, Rod, Rodrigo, before you, you continue, it, it's, it's really, I mean, that's a really cool illustration because it shows that, that the two, the 67% in NTSX versus 100% in VBIX actually produced almost identical results. Uh, actually, right. fl- slightly better, actually. It looked for, for a lot of the duration. Yeah, a lot that of could time. vary month to month, yeah. year to year. That's really on a little bit of tracking. To yeah. say, look, you're getting what you, you're getting that tracking that your client wants. Yeah. And now they can get that every year. And they, what, you, don't have to, you don't have to be bothered by it. But at the end of the year, you're also going to get a little something else. Yeah. And they're going to be like, oh, that's kind of nice. And if the 60-40 portfolio does 2%, for the next 10 years, and you happen to have stacked it with things that are maybe slightly better than that, you might be able to save your client's retirement. Yeah. Okay. And the reason I think this is a crucial conversation to have with advisors today is because this approach of stacking non-correlated things and using leverage is what won the Nobel Prize early 90s by Sharp, is by putting together non-correlated strategies, finding the most optimal portfolio, and then using thoughtful leverage in a well-diversified portfolio. A lot of people get, you know, start thinking about the double bulls and the double bears and leverage is bad. Yes, you should not use leverage to double your exposure to the S&P 500. Right. But if you're putting together portfolio diversified assets, your volatility goes way down. If you lever it up a little bit, you're going to be in good shape, right? Now, this is nothing new. Warren Buffett made his millions. There's a study that we quote in the paper that it, he just basically buys high quality low ball stock and levers it up with the kitty that he's got from the insurance company to 1.6%, right? So you can six replicate times. a lot of Warren Buffett's portfolio. Yeah, by six times. Yeah, one by six times. Um, so why, I, why do I think it's crucial? Because the conversations I've been having with advisors over the last five years, they are desperate for returns and they are, they are changing the character of the bond composition to things that sound like bonds, but are actually equity and drag, right? Yeah. These are things like, you know, private credit or, you know, corporate bond ladders or high yield ETFs, right? They seem like it's the bond component, but all they're doing is going up further and further up the risk curve into a single asset classes that is vulnerable to any type of negative growth shock, right? This is where they feel is the only way. When you're seeing yields at, one and a half, one percent different time periods. You are, you're, you, this is advisors don't want to buy bonds. What's the point of buying bonds at this point? It makes absolutely no sense. So yeah. they're just taking all this risk. And, and a lot of people got caught offside in March of 2020 because of that, right? So this provides advisors and investors an alternative to reaching for yield, stacking diversified yeah. returns that are actually much more robust to a downturn. So that is what, like, that's kind of why I think it's important for advisors to consider this. It is absolutely not new. It is Nobel Prize winning concept. It is available to you today in a way that wasn't available to you even two years ago. And, and now there are multiple funds aside. So we, we start with that wisdom tree ETF. But in the US, and now I'm starting to see in Canada, there's a handful of other fund companies that are providing embedded 
exposures to beta plus alpha, right? So we can get yeah. into that if you want. I think it's important to highlight Maybe. that there's two things going on here, at least two things. One of them is that you're able to boost the expected return on the portfolio by taking that 33% um, excess cash and deploying that to strategies that are likely to have a premium to deliver a premium over cash, right? So now you're stacking your turns on the portfolio. The second thing that's happening is you're able to allocate to strategies that are uncorrelated to stocks and bonds and are designed to deliver their returns in environments that may be hostile to stocks and bonds. For example, and as you alluded to, Rodrigo, stocks are fundamentally designed to do well during periods of positive growth shocks, benign inflation, and abundant liquidity conditions. Bonds are fundamentally designed to do well during um, uh, disinflationary periods and low growth periods. But what about periods like the 1970s, for example, where we had um, consistent negative growth shocks, growth came in consistently below expectations at the same time that inflation consistently came in above inf uh, expectations. Well, in, this, in the 1970s, from 1966 to 1982, the real returns, so after you back out inflation to both stocks and bonds, was negative for about 16 years, right? So now you have an opportunity to allocate to both different asset classes, for example, gold and commodities that just right. rocked it at, at, you know, low to high um, teen annualized returns all the way through um, the 1970s. And we're able to continue to deliver, at least at a portfolio level, the returns that investors required in order to meet their obligations, right? Without those commodities and gold, then investors would have had a very difficult time meeting their obligations. And nowadays, of course, we have other strategies that um, are designed to deliver returns that are even independent of, of inflation and growth dynamics. There's, these are sort of typical kind of portable alpha type strategies. Rodrigo, Rodrigo mentioned one like trend, other factor strategies, mm -hmm. more esoteric um, and complex strategies. But you've got this 33% of the portfolio that you can use to boost returns, and ensure that your portfolio is resilient in the face of economic environments that are hostile to the core equity and bond exposures that most investors rely on. Another way I think of looking at it is also, you know, since we're talking about risk exposures and risk premium, is, is, is also the uh, taking a look at the duration of assets as well, right? I mean, if you have a, a traditional 60-40, which is looking more likely, likely to behave more like 70 or 80 or 90% equity or high duration in a, in a, in a growth shock, we're starting to see, you know, more persistence of inflation or at least an, a persistent outlook for inflation. Um, equities, of course, tech stocks being the longest or highest, you know, longest duration assets you can own. And then, and then down from there, and then we just, when, when you get into something like credit, you're still exposed to duration to some degree, credit risk. There's duration in there, especially in the the, the investment grade uh, market, and a lot of a lot of portfolios have gone into investment grade in the fixed income sleeve. 
Uh, so you're, you're ending up with all this duration and maybe an, an, another way to, to look at this return stacking opportunity or, or um, this novel concept is to also look at ways to add assets that are lower in duration as well, like, for example, commodities. So you're, you're, you're getting away from the uh, assets that are going to be susceptible to growth shocks as well. But it's really, so again, it's really nifty when you, when you look at that, that uh, 67% uh, allocation yeah. to it's, it's all those things that you can do. I've already been, had many discussions with advisors in, in the U.S. on this because um, in the U.S. there's more opportunity than there is in Canada to stack. But one of the things that keeps on coming up is, oh, well, I can now get my 60-40 and also stack some NASDAQ on top or, you know, <laughs> do some junk bonds. And, I'm, and my so they're, they're looking at that. It, or even, even the discussion with regard to gold yeah. and adding gold, like just passive gold and passive commodities is actually not going to be useful from the pers- if you have a client that cares about tracking error. What you actually want to do with that 33 cents on the dollar is allocated to something that has high likelihood of, of, of being up nine out of 10 years. And right. gold simply doesn't do that, right? Gold maybe has done that in the past 20, but it did ha- like 40% of the time it was up uh, in, in the 90s, right? In the 80s. So you, what you, if you wanna, if you have clients that are sensitive to tracking here, you wanna do your best at using that excess, excess money, excess capital, to, to put together absolute return mandates, right? So right. Adam alluded to the 1970s where both bonds and equities lost at the same time. It happened to be a hyperinflation scenario. So in high inflation scenarios, commodities do well. Now you could just buy a passive, passive gold commodity exposure, or you could buy a, a trend CTA or a global, systematic global macro that has the ability to go long commodities and into all things. And also go short when it goes the other way. And that type of, of concept or those types of strategies have a higher likelihood of making you a positive return most years, right? So in the rest of the piece, we outline, we actually chose those two, um, you know, the CTA and systematic global macro, because they have that quality of being there for you in periods of high inflation without, right. without also hurting you in periods of deflation. So I think that's a crucial concept. You're gonna you gotta be thoughtful about what you're gonna do with that with those thirty three cents. You don't just want to use it to buy some more and some more equity. Okay? Um, you mean like 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 more so, um, yeah <laughs> more technology stocks? <laughs> yeah, and Lingry, you know, okay. yeah. in spite everybody seems to hate on a lot of the alternative strategies because they've only provided single digit returns, right? So I'm gonna go back all the way back to the beginning of our conversation now that we understand the concept. All right, so yes, it's true. You know, yeah, cool, but we run HRAA with Horizons. It's futures-based. Yeah. We use, we're able to use the, the max leverage cap the, the regulators give us, and we're long short, and we have all the bells and whistles, but it, because we are so diversified and we have multiple strategies, trend, seasonality, mean reversion, all those little moving parts, what ends up happening is our volatility collapses to eight balls. Right. And so what does that mean? Maybe it means in the long term return of eight or seven, right? Between six and eight. On its if you're asking an advisor to reduce their exposure for to the class portfolios to add that single digit return, some will do it. Most will. Now you have because you don't want to re- take away from your, you know, uh, home country bias. Now you have thirty three cents that you can add to strategies like HRAA that offer diversification and actually give you that stacked HRA return. And if, right. if we were to, to do, you know, a 
3%, which would mean that you would stack 1% on top, 33 cents on the dollar, right? So a third of the return that we give you will go on top of your 60-40. Now that's not so bad. Now that single digit alternative strategy that has very little to do with your 60-40 yeah. is actually perfect, right? You don't, you're not whining, you're not complaining. That's a key behavioral aspect about this paper that I think is, is what advisors uh, are really, really excited about. Uh, yeah, I, so I think I love, you know, that's I, an important I, concept. I love it from the perspective that, that, you know, number one, you guys are always in, you know, you're always looking for something more palatable. We, we've talked so much about line item behavioral risk, uh, in, in past conversations that we've had, you know, where, uh, you know, which are the things that, that investors and advisors alike end up abandoning because they can't take the heat, the career risk, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's causing too much controversy in their conversations with their clients. It's causing, it's causing their clients to depart, right? If they don't, if they ignore it, but if you can actually find a way to incorporate some of those line items without it being, um, you know, career risk, it's a lot, it's a lot friendlier. It's a lot, it's, it's a much, it's a much more, you know, much more exciting, uh, way to go. Yeah, no, I just wanted to, to emphasize that I don't think we want to pretend that we've come up to, with something new and magical. I mean, the institutional um, ecosystem has been using this approach for many, many years because institutions typically have the ability to gain cheap leverage. Either they can gain their core exposures using futures, which requires very little capital, and they can deploy their excess capital to alternatives. Um, or they can hold their core, their core positions um, in cash instruments and deploy to futures-based active strategies, which consume very little, little capital. Historically, this has been described using terms like portable alpha, capital efficiency, et cetera. So this is very well known and documented as an effective strategy in the, in the institutional yeah. space. I think, Rodrigo, it's worth going into why this approach, why, why we felt it was, it was time to write about this approach and show retail clients and advisors who deal with retail clients, why the time has come for, the, for them to think about this type of strategy today. Maybe go into that. Well, thanks, Adam, because I, I, I wasn't, I mean, I don't think I was trying to suggest that it's a whole new idea that you've come up with, um, but it's a new way to look at an old idea, a new way to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's brand spanking new in that retail investors and advisors might've known it. They might've studied it. Mm -hmm. And then when they turned to their broker dealer and said, Hey, I want to use some leverage. They're like, okay, go ahead. It's 10% cost to you, Mr. Retail advisor. Right. Yeah. And so the only reason, the only time people use margin and brokerage accounts these days is to take a speculative bet on a small cap for a short period of time that they think is going to double or triple so they can get that leverage in, pay back the loan and not have to maintain it long-term, right? So in the Canadian space, this idea of leverage has been seen as incredibly expensive, short-term and detrimental most of the time, let's be honest, right? Yeah. Um, so what has changed? Well, what has changed is that the institutional access to cheap leverage has now come from the fund providers themselves. So we run a mutual fund in the United States. We run an ETF in Canada. We're in a couple of hedge funds. We are an institutional client that gets institutional quality leverage, meaning as, as 
low a cost as you can possibly get. And because we can create these structures, we're able to now, and a retail investor or advisor that buys our fund is through that measure, getting exactly that same uh, leverage, that cheap leverage that, um, that they normally can't get. Now, if it was just our fund, then that'd be kind of a problem. But over the last two years, we've seen 10 to 15 mutual funds in the United States that are offering these levered exposures. I mentioned a couple that have 50% SPY and then 100% CTA. So that's 150% exposure to these non-correlated things, right? You can, you can now grab that one, mix it up with our fund in the US that is risk parity, which is like global beta and then systematic global macro, similar to what we do in HRA. And now you have an interesting combination of like global macro long short with some exposure to global equities and, and domestic equities. And then this CTA that's 50% SPY and 100% CTA. And then go a step further by PIMCO's uh, Stock Plus Fund, which is 100% stock and 100% fixed income. You see, so all of a sudden, we've, I found myself having all these different puzzle pieces that can fit together in completely different ways. And what, because one of the key things when I first mentioned this idea of, hey, all you need to do is buy 66% of your client's portfolio in a single ETF, is that, right. yeah, we're not going to do that, right? <laughs> we're not going to put $66 into this thing. No, uh, I need more line items, right? So again, going back to line item risk. So the solution is clearly that you can put together, so why don't I share my screen again? Um, you can put together a series of funds that all offer deferring levels of exposure, lever exposure, and and then you, you have a canvas to draw on, right? right. Um, just give me one second as I bring this up. So in here in the piece, so anybody can follow along and you can download the paper uh, on our website. Um, maybe you can provide it in the show notes, Pierre. But yeah, we're going we're gonna to put them in the show the, notes. We're going to put the paper in the show notes. So these are 10 products that we highlight. Right. Next, right? And what you see here is uh, product one through 10. The 100% mark is right here, right? So you can see that every one of them, if you x-ray their funds, have lever exposure to different things, anywhere from active bond, active equity. Uh, this is, you know, uh, basic long-only commodity exposure, some bond, global bond exposure, domestic equity. This is half equity, half bonds, and so on. This all, A lot of them have tail protection embedded in them. I think that's an important concept here. So product seven has tail protection. Product two and one have tail protection embedded in there. Things, a tail protection is something that everybody's asking for right now, but it's way too expensive for retail to, to be able to get access to, right? So we offer tail protection in the HRAA fund, for example. And so now you have this, you have these 10 products. And what we did in the paper is we said, okay, if I grab product one and add 15, product two, 15%, product three, 15%. So now we have multiple line items here, right? multiple line items where the client's going to see a bunch of different things in their portfolio. They're going to see these line items and these percentages that add up to 100%. But we know that embedded in them is a combination of equity bond, CTA, global macro, convexity, and volatility programs. That when you add them up, you get around 60% equity, around 40% bond, around 28% trend CTA, around 30% global macro, a little bit of convexity, and so on. So you're getting a total exposure of 161%, but you're getting it with this palatable multiple line item exposure. Okay. And so the idea that you, the idea here is you, you, you're 
grabbing these CTAs and global macro that act differently from equities and bonds and you're creating a robust portfolio, right? And that they're not correlated. So yeah. um, the result of that, so what we did is we went back all the way to, to 2000 using the SOC Gen CTA index, using the Goldman Sachs global macro index, and then the 60 and the 40 and showed what, what that would look like. And you can see here, this is like a calendar return of the, of this portfolio where the light green is night 18 out of the 21 years is above the 60, 40 balance portfolio, right? So there, there's no guarantee that you're going to make money every single year in that kind of alpha stack, but most years you're stacking that return and then ended up through that 20 year, that uh, yeah, 21 year period, having returns in excess of 4% from the 60, 40 portfolio. Does that make sense? Amazing. It's fascinating. I love the way you've anonymized the, uh, the different, uh, um, products. Uh, it really, yeah, well, the, I don't uh, love it. It's, it's a regulatory <laughs> requirement in the United States. Um, because most of okay. the, uh, most of the conversations I'm having is t show me the list and I, I can't yeah. really do it in the U S we can do it in Canada, but we can't do it in the U S yeah. uh, and, and Canadians can't get access to a lot of these anyway. Right. The goal, the goal here is to continue to educate the Canadian space in hopes that more allocators can do what the U S is doing. Um, certainly Canadians can get access to NTSX and there's a few ETFs right. out there that they can get access to. Um, and there's one, uh, I'll see if I can remember. There's another fun company in Canada that it's doing stacking and written about it as well, based out of Quebec, uh, that I'll, I'll find and mention in a second. Um, but I like, we're, I mean, there's I, two I, of us I, now, HRAA and this other company. Yeah. I'm sure if I keep on digging, I'll find a few more in Canada. And now you can start mixing things up and creating something interesting. Right? It's really interesting. Just, I mean, right, just right off the bat, just to be aware that these things exist or to become aware that they exist. So, I mean, I think that's where, you know, at, at the out, you know, in terms of this conversation being useful, I don't know that I, I would, I would probably, I would, I would bet that most advisors aren't even aware that they can do these kinds of things. I, I know for a fact that they get, right. <laughs> um, as I am having these conversations. Um, but one of the things that does come up often is I'm terrified that I'm using leverage. I'm going to have these massive drawdowns, uh, when everything correlates to one. And that's why it's so crucial to use strategies that tend to do well in bad markets. And that's why CTA, right. systematic global macro are pretty good at that. Um, but there's also the tail protection included in there. Having said that the, in the paper, and I'll show my screen one more time here, um, you can see that the drawdown and recovery profile of the stacked portfolio is either better or the same as the 64, right? So light blue is the stacked portfolio. Dark blue is the 64. And this is how the, the depth of the drawdown and the time to recover back to break even. So you, if you do it thoughtfully enough, you can create a portfolio that gives your clients the same type of risk profile as their Mark home, home country uh, bias for 6040 portfolio while um, while stacking those excess three to 4% returns in, in the case of this portfolio over here. And, it, and this drawdown and recovery chart doesn't even include the, the tail protection side of things because we couldn't, it's really tough to model and back test. So you can assume that in, in the most abrupt drawdowns here, you probably benefited a bit from those tail 
protection positions in there. I, I mean, in terms of in terms of you know having this this approach demonstrated, I, I don't think that would. I think it's nicer that the tail risk isn't in there, or yeah, you know, the tail risk protection probably isn't in there. Yeah, because because then you get a you actually get a true sense of what you can expect without even thinking about that added layer of of insurance. Um, yeah. But it, 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 it just shows you. And the other fund company in yeah. Canada that does this, it's called acceleratedshares.com. So ATSX.TO. Um, Rodrigo, they've written about a, it and. You, you've got it. Yeah. You went back and actually put together an index, right? Of if you had combined the underlying funds in the weights as recommended or described in the paper, what actually would have happened, including the extra costs of allocated active strategies and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, yeah, we're gonna so I have the index. I yeah. haven't gotten it disclaimed yet, so I won't be able to show. But I can verbally, you know, confirm that if you had grabbed those funds as of the dates that they offered uh, that level of leverage, the balance portfolios from November 2020 uh, to today, the balance portfolio annualized around 14% and the stack portfolio was 19% with the exact same drawdown, a slightly improved drawdown since the same volatility, slightly, slightly above, uh, uh, above average volatility. So and it's not, here. what what I showed back then are a couple indices and 64 to see what it did from 1990. I even went back to 1987 uh, when I grabbed monthly indices for the CTN Global Macro. Now the proof is in the pudding. I actually hadn't uh, tested the combination of those funds and seen what it done until after I published a paper mm-hmm. and somebody came to me and said, how's it done? I'm like, that's a good question. And so I ran it with Corey and it was 19% versus 14. So it is after fees, transaction costs, leverage costs, that's exactly what one would expect, right? So it's very much there available for investors today. The question now is, can we educate enough to wrap people's minds around this? Can we change people's minds about the efficient frontier and the capital market line, the use of thoughtful leverage in, in creating portfolios? And I think more importantly is can we get the advisor's compliance department to recognize the value and the merit behind these things, right? Because if you think about it, we're not asking them to put together a traditional portfolio and add 20% of alternatives. We're asking them to create a portfolio that in the eyes of the compliance department is a hundred percent alternatives. Every single line item there mm-hmm. will be alternative. Even the NTSX, which is 60-40 Weber, will be seen as an alternative sleeve and high risk and all the things that preclude people from being able to do it. So there's going to be an effort by us and uh, and Corey and and hopefully advisors that that read this piece to educate their own team, their own broker dealer or portfolio management team to recognize that this is a, this is a different beast. We need to think about it differently. You, you might even consider creating a brand new sleeve that allows people to write a kill letter, understanding all the risks to be able to, to, to get this exposure today and prove it out over the next three years as people get more and more comfortable with it. Right. So that is, I think that is the biggest hurdle in implementing this today. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, there's nothing like repetition though, right? <laughs> Just keep on talking so I, about it. Am I hearing that the monitors always... Back in 2000, 
Yeah, my boss is buying in and they're, they're calling like, listen, I am in Austin, sir. But, and I'm talking to one of the largest teams in the United States. They're, they're billions and billions of dollars. The head of product, as I shared, as he, he got the piece, reached out to us and said, we are having this discussion about our advisors reaching for yield through getting more equity exposure. And we're terrified. We think that this may be a solution that we can provide for them. So there are thoughtful, large organizations that are mm-hmm. terrified of the uh, reaching for yield. That, that going up the equity uh, risk scale and are looking for solutions. And this is, you know, this is great validation that we're going in the right direction. I'll also say that as an advisor, I worked at Blackmont Capital. It was a small broker dealer, but I was able to put together a business case and a proposal for my team and, and the firm that allowed me to invest in 100% offering memorandum product to for clients. Right. So if you are educated enough and you show the concepts clearly to your team, you don't have to wait for them. They may not make a blanket statement for everybody, but they will oftentimes work with you to do what you think is best for clients, generally speaking. So just, you know, it is, it's not impossible. You don't have to wait for them to give you green light. You can make a case and, and, and put together a business plan to do it. Um, so that's, I think, um, you know, my, my takeaway from, being in the field and talking to advisors that, that are liking this growth. I think, I, I mean, I just, you know, what I like about this uh, on the surface is that it, it's not complicated engineering. Well, the complicated is, engineering happens under the hood. Yeah. I mean, knowing, you, you know, when you buy these products, when you invest in these products, what's in them, what, what the design of them is for. And, and how they work when you put the, you know, and you, of course you've done all the back test, you know, you've done all the back testing on the actual returns, uh, from these products. And so again, it's not theoretical. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's based on actual results. It's not based on, on a, on a back test of, of, uh, indices without costs and, uh, you know, it, it that's that. That's what occurs to me. Just looking at it, I think I can see why it's very attractive to uh, advisors actually who are actually looking for a solution. That's a really good point, um, actually, um, Pierre. Because I think many advisors over the last five or six years, due to new regulations that that um, encourages them to um, scrutinize fees very vigilantly. Um, are hypersensitive now about adding more complex products that maybe have higher fee structures. And so I think one of the things that that sometimes people highlight is, well, does this stacking strategy survive the excess fees on the active funds that you might want to put into this? And, and uh, one of the things that we were extremely gratified to see is that, in fact, they do, this strategy does yeah. survive the excess fees. Um, with, with quite a nice excess premium on top. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, that, so, that's obviously a big, uh, pain point as well. Yeah. But in that respect, you're fulfilling, you're fulfilling the, uh, the sort of cost, low cost promise, right? You're not, you're not sacrificing it for, for, uh, high costing strategies. Well, another way to think about it too, is that you, the, the fees that are being charged are being charged on a much more significant total exposure. 
right? So you've got a total yeah. amount of fees, but you're, the, the fees are spread out not over 100% of your dollars being exposed, but 160% of your dollars being exposed, right? So you're, you're diluting your fees by the amount of leverage that you are getting in your portfolio. Keep right. in mind that the leverage you're, you're applying is being devoted to strategies that we have high confidence are going to deliver excess returns over cash and are going to provide returns that are uncorrelated and, and sometimes negatively correlated to the returns on your core portfolio when you need them to be negatively correlated the most, right? So it really is a have your cake and eat it too type strategy, even net of fees. Amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and we so, feel that, right? We like people are used to, uh, especially now in the U.S., there's a lot of pressure for having a like a portfolio that has a you know, blended fee of 0.15, right? So when we actually added up what these 10 products would add up to in terms of a blended fee, and it was around 1.2, 1.3. Um, so the argument is, you know, how can we defend that? Well, you can defend it by all the arguments that we made today. And then you can just look at the actual funds and see that, you know, after fees, transaction costs and everything in real life, it's done in excess 4%. So it, it's not about, I don't think the, the, regula the regulations are not about protecting the client and ensuring that all you do is provide them with low fee investments. The regulation is if you are going to allocate to a higher fee investment, you need to make your case as to why you think that's better for the client. And I think this makes it crystal clear as to why it would be better for the client. And, um, and it, you know, it's certainly proven itself out. You know, there's, there's other th things that we mentioned in the piece that it's not just about getting that excess exposure as Adam alluded to, but you're getting leverage professionally managed. So you're getting leverage exposure at the lowest possible cost. And I think one thing that's often um, uh, not thought of in, as an important concept, but it is, is if you have a manager that is allocating to a diversifying asset classes and rebalancing back to the weightings that they want, there's a rebalancing premium that you only really benefit from if you have very low trading costs. And yeah. again, trading costs for institutionally managed portfolios are very, very low. And we wrote a piece uh, and a couple of months ago that talks about the rebalancing premium and the rebalancing premium in a, you know, managed across 70 different futures contracts if you do it thoughtfully, just by rebalancing, not by any expectations of growth or adding any extra factors, uh, exposures or tilts, just to rebalancing back to a diversified portfolio can add as much as three to 4% of excess returns to the client's portfolio. <laughs> That's assuming they make yeah. zero. Assuming every one of those asset classes makes zero. If you're able to rebalance at low cost, you can capture an excess return from pure noise, from entropy, right? And so, again, that's another reason why fees yeah. are, you know, not that significant. And you could take this return stacking strategy and do all the rebalancing as well there as you. Yeah, that that four percent that four percent um, premium that you're talking about in returns. Uh, yeah, it can be uh, so if if that you, doesn't include the rebalancing, rebalancing right. across the three, it does not include the rebalancing within the funds. Right? Yeah, so you're not going to have to do okay. as much because the funds within it are doing a lot of rebalancing. But once a quarter, you'll do a rebalance and you'll benefit from it. Right. Oh, that's so. Yeah, because yes, there could there, be line items. There could be line items in that 
portfolio that have had excess return, like substantial excess returns over a given exactly. period. And then you'd rebalance, you'd rebalance back to your, your core allocation. Each yeah. Time, right? So Rodrigo, mm -hmm. maybe, I, do you want to maybe sort of do that like set the arc? Sorry, Pierre. Could? Yeah. I, I was just going to say that, that, you know, like when it comes, you know, advisors are always being told, you know, how to iterate their value, you know, and there's some, there's some really great ways. One of those ways, of course, is rebalancing, but I'm just curious, Rodrigo, you, you're speaking to a lot of advisors. How many advisors actually systematically rebalance their portfolios? What percentage do you think so, that is? So we deal... We deal with two types of advisors and they're the wirehouse advisors in the U.S. equivalent to the broker dealers. And then you have the portfolio managers in the uh, SEC realm, which is equivalent to the OSC in Ontario and, you know, the, the what used to be called the um, the ICPMs, right? So these are independent right. portfolio managers that can run portfolios discretionarily. And so generally speaking, discretionary portfolio managers do have a very tight and, and agreed upon rebalancing process because they don't have to call clients. They have a, a system that allows them to do that. Right. In the IROC space where you have to call your clients every time you make a change, that becomes a bit more challenging. Right. And so, no, I'm not seeing rebalancing as a core value proposition for advisors that don't have a portfolio manager license. Seth. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is because. You guys have written extensively on it. Your next to most recent paper on on maximizing the rebalancing premium. Um, I'm just amazed that that you know when it comes like that is such a simple proposition. It's not the easiest proposition to carry out, especially if you're not a discretionary mm -hmm. PM. But that in itself, I mean, if you just explained it and and acted on it would make you an invaluable advisor. Just that one thing alone, just being able to get that extra three or 4% in, in rebalancing premium would be any taxi pairs. It does not, that, that, that un unlike the, uh, unlike the return stacking, which seems to be sexy enough, the rebalancing premium is not sexy at all, right? That is much, no. this is a tough part. We've dealt with boring for too many years. Um, and yeah. so, you know, send like true, a common sense, you know, proven strategies, diversification, risk parity, rebalancing premium. We've tried it all, banging our heads against the wall, continues to add value, continues yeah. to show its benefit. Not sexy enough to, to make it a, a reason to go out and get new clients. I don't think that'll work. They're always looking I just, to see how, I just, you, how you, can you provide uh, some sort of predictive value, right? So I see that's thinking. why it's not done. When you're thinking about these things, like when you, you know, you're thinking about return stacking, like I, I think it's, I think it's an incredibly exciting idea. And, but then, you know, when you, once you, let's say you do that, you go ahead and you do the, you know, you do, you go ahead and you implement return stacking. The fact that you can then on top of that, add to that, the rebalancing premium and all of these other, you know, ideas that you're, that you're referring to as, as boring and uh, ignored to a large degree. We republished thought leadership from Russell Investments and they're really, they're really big on advisor value, right? How to define your value as an advisor, uh, from not from the personal standpoint, mostly from the technical standpoint, you know, the things that you actually do for your clients. Um, and one of those big things is rebalancing and 
they, they write extensively about it, as do you. And, and you know, it makes me, I, I just look at that and it makes me wonder, you know, there's so much proof here. There's so much evidence here. And yet there's so few people doing it. I know it's, it's the behavioral roadblocks that happen, right? Like if you've got, if you've got a client that has like, uh, okay, just the other day, for example, uh, there was the news that, that uh, Kathy Wood had trimmed shares of Tesla. People are wondering, you know, why would she sell it, right? And the, the, the simple answer to that is that she has to. She has to rebalance out of it. It's, 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 it's such, a, such a huge holding in her stable funds. She has actually no choice. The, the, there's rules that she's following and she's acting on them. It's, it's a systematic rebalancing. But wait, are you trying to give coin. money to the right? losers? You're going to give money to the losers <laughs> and you're going to take away that winner? Yeah. Exactly. And then exactly. also, right. oh, I got to do that and then call every one of my clients. No, thank you. Um, it's just, it's structural and behavioral, Pierre. And yeah. Um, and yeah, it does require a ton of education. And that's why discretionary managers are well off. Because when you don't have to call your clients, you can just do it. You're in better shape, right? But, um, yeah. You know, I think there's there's a ton of thoughtful advisors out out there. They're doing the, the traditional IROC for sure. Are meeting with clients once a year, and they're and, and as far as I know, you know, the guys that I know are, are guys and gals that I know are doing yep. the rebalancing at that point. Right? They finish a meeting, they go back, they talk to their uh, admin assistants, and they do that traditional rebalancing. Right? Not as often as they should probably, but often enough. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it's definitely crucial. All of this is, you know, added value one layer at a time. Um, I think this stack and return is really exciting. As you said, it's probably one of the more exciting, um, feedback we've gotten from advisors because again, it's, you know, the idea of stack and returns, um, in a very obvious way. Rodrigo, I I interrupted you before. And you were going to, you know, you were going to say something. There was something you were going to, a point you were going to make. I, I, I can't really remember now. I think Adam uh, had a question. Adam prompted it. Uh, oh, no, I was, yeah, I was just going to say um, that I think it, it behooves us since really this was um, Rodrigo and Corey's baby, this paper. So I think it, mm-hmm. as we sort of wrap up, it's useful for Rod maybe to summarize the core points of the paper, right? Well, one of the motivations, why should yep. advisors be thinking about this now? Um, one is return stacking. How can they implement for their, for their investors? And then if they want to follow up, how can they reach us? Absolutely. So I think, you know, in, in summary, advisors either know or should know that based on forward-looking valuations, there's numerous well-reputable firms that, have, that are coming up with expectations that are really, really low over the next 10 to 15 years. And so if you understand that, but are also in the, that trap of having to provide your clients with exposure to their domestic markets, then there is a better way that is outside of just doing more domestic equity or equity-like product. Reaching for yield can get you to a lot of trouble. You're not getting the protection you get from your bonds and you're going to find yourself having a really large drawdown when clients were expecting a bond portfolio to be there for them. And so what, what is the way to do this? Well, unlike two to three years ago where there weren't many options today, there are ETFs uh, out of the United States and a couple of funds here in Canada that provide you with levered exposure to active mandates where you're getting a little bit of beta and a little bit of alpha or maybe a lot of beta and a lot of bonds 
And when you, if you're able to put these together in a thoughtful way that give you the beta exposure that you need to keep your clients happy, what you want to do is you want to stack uh, returns or returns from asset classes or strategies that are likely or really trying to provide absolute return most years, right? So you're aiming to, to stack things that you expect to make money eight or nine out of the 10 years that you invest in them. And one of the easiest ways to do it is you buy, you can buy the um, NSTX or the Wisdom Tree uh, Core Plus, I think it's what it's called, where you're getting a 60-40 exposure by only buying 67 cents on the dollar. And then seeing that excess cash as an opportunity to invest in what used to seem like very low returning, you know, low volatility, boring alternatives that don't add much spice to your clients' portfolios. But now because you're stacking those returns on top, they all of a sudden become really, really interesting. And you're not forcing your clients to take excess risk in the same asset class. You're really diversifying your portfolio and stacking diversified returns on top, right? So it's a whole new world that we are all striving for returns. We are, we have historically been faced with either equities or bonds. Now we are faced with equities, bonds, alternatives, and thoughtful leverage that can get your clients to the, to the, the, the returns that they, hopefully the returns that, that, um, that they require in the retirement and a more thoughtful, new to retail, but oldest time on the institutional side. CPP, your teacher's pension plan, all of these institutions, if you were to look at their uh, yearly reports, will show you how much leverage they're getting exposure to. And so those solid, well-diversified, smoothed out returns happen by applying these concepts. Um, and now today, advisors can get the same level of thoughtful, professionally managed alpha strategies with the beta and low um, cost of leverage. So Brand new world advisors. Uh, we are happy uh, to, to talk as much as you want about this. You can go to investresolve.com, um, go to the um, the research side, and you'll see it there on top, that stacking returns piece. And I don't know if, if you're going to share the link or not, but we are wide open for discussions. This is the, the example that we give in the paper is an example. There's a wide variety of things that you can do. I know that um, all weather is in, in vogue for those advisors. Dragon portfolio, you can do all those things using these pieces. So uh, happy to discuss and consult. Yeah, I mean the paper is really well laid out. I like I like the fact that you, that early example right at the beginning is really an illustrative example. You wouldn't actually, you know, you pointed out in the discussion rot, rot, that you wouldn't actually allocate sixty six percent of your client's money to, uh, you know, either the, the V banks or, or, uh, NTSX itself, but just to illustrate the point of how that levered NTSX strategy can, can free up the cash, uh, on a dollar, you know, uh, notional exposure basis. Um, see, these are all things that I've learned from, from our conversations, by the way, you know, notional exposure, um, <laughs> Um, I, I want to, I want to just, uh, I want to ask you to remind, I mean, because I think the context is very important. It's, uh, you know, I, I know I've, uh, underestimated, you know, this one risk to rule them all that you guys have as, as part of your investment philosophy, but yeah, I think it's really the basis of all of your thinking. 
It's, it's at, it's underneath everything you do. I mean, there's a lot, you have a lot of, uh, items in your investment philosophy that you can, that you can point to that are, that form the basis of your thinking. But I really love the one risk to rule them all, which is, which is that for investors at Resolve, you believe that the only risk that matters is the risk that your clients won't meet their financial goals. And, uh, I absolutely love that precept because because if you go into this business with that one idea at the front of everything that you do, or it's as the basis of everything that you do, um, it's very hard to go wrong when 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 that is the default, uh, you know, basis for for what your for your everything in your investment selection process, portfolio construction. Um, will this, you know, what's the potential for this to, to cause, you know, a dear loss to any of our clients and so, or a loss of, of, um, of fortitude to stick with it because you don't have enough in your home country. Right. So again, it's not just optimal portfolio construction, it's understanding the human element. And so it's, this is a key aspect of what we're trying to engage that, that cross-section between what's mathematically optimal and what's behaviorally optimal. And I think this piece highlights our efforts toward that one risk to rule them all concept. Yeah. Well, so, guys, uh, I, I want to thank you very much because uh, this was really, it was really, first of all, very, very interesting and also exciting at the same time. Um, I've, I personally, you know, until I actually read your paper, I, I hadn't actually even thought about it this way. It was in the, for me, it was in the realm of unknown unknowns that you could even approach it this way. And, um, and now of course it's in the known unknowns. I know it exists, but I still have to wrap my head around it more fully, but it's, it's fascinating. And I, you know, I think we'll, we'll probably end up talking about this, uh, more than a few times more. Um, so final question for you guys, not the, not the regular, you know, another, would you rather question? Okay. I'm not sure how you, since there's two of you here to answer the question, would you rather be the worst player on the best team or the best player on the worst team? I think the growth mindset, man, I have like, what, would mandate being what's player on the best team because you've got the opportunity to learn from all of the other players of the team, right? So you've got this right. opportunity to grow. Whereas, you know, but being the best player on the worst team, maybe then you've got an opportunity from a coaching perspective. So um, if you really enjoy the coaching aspect of helping others to grow and improve, then maybe there's a, a better opportunity there. So maybe it's a maybe it's a preference issue. I'm not sure. Rod, where do you stand? <laughs> I'm a big fan of diversification. So if Adam is going to be in the best, in the, in the, the best team and the worst player, I'll take the other side and see where we may get traded in the same team eventually. I'll recruit with you. the resolve philosophy of, <laughs> of steel netting every conceivable way to look at a problem. You're <laughs> to start dissecting it. Exactly. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. That was, that was amazing. I'm, uh, Thanks. Really Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it.